I next met with Dr. Philip McCarthy, and to begin, he commented on how he explains the disease multiple myeloma to his patients. We say it's a type of blood cell that's actually more often involved in the bone marrow and usually hides in the bone marrow, and sometimes other parts of the body, the lymph nodes, the spleen. And this has gone berserk and is secreting or making a protein, but only one kind of protein. And instead of making all the different types of proteins that are involved with vaccination, so when you get a tetanus shot, you make antibodies to tetanus. This only makes one antibody. Oftentimes, we usually don't know what it's an antibody to, but it does it at the expense of all the other plasma cells that make the antibodies that help us fight off infections. So it starts to crowd them all out. Myeloma patients are more susceptible to getting infections. And through a rather complicated mechanism, the myeloma cells tell the bone to start to deteriorate. So either the myeloma can punch holes indirectly or directly in the skeleton or cause diffuse osteoporosis rapidly. And this is a major problem. So we start to think of all the things that go wrong. One of them are infections. The other are bone lesions and ultimately bone disease and fractures. Because it's crowding out the good cells, it also causes anemia. And patients will often have very symptomatic problems because they often will present with anemia and shortness of breath fatigue. And then finally, the other two things that are involved are kidney problems where the myeloma protein gums up the kidneys and keeps the kidneys from functioning properly, leading to, in severe cases, renal failure. And then because of its actions on the bone, the myeloma cells can cause high calcium levels. And these high calcium levels can lead to all kinds of problems that can be life-threatening if the calcium level gets very high. How is myeloma typically diagnosed clinically? It's often picked up because the patient has unexplained anemia, and so they're undergoing an anemia workup. And then somebody notices, hey, they've got a high total protein, and that usually sends people down the right pathway. Where we get fooled, or I should say the clinicians can get fooled, is if they have light chain disease. So they often will not have an elevated total protein, and so sometimes it may take a while for that to be found out. Can you explain what light chain disease is? Sure. The immunoglobulin is made up of two heavy chains, two light chains. And this immunoglobulin has two binding sites, so it binds antigen. And these light chains can be made exclusively by the plasma cell and without any heavy chains. And so these can get secreted. And because they can be filtered through the kidney quite rapidly as opposed to the whole immunoglobulin which stays in the bloodstream, it all ends up in the urine. So if somebody's not thinking about it, you can end up with lots of protein in the urine and you won't see it in the bloodstream. The other case I should mention where people will present and sometimes it doesn't get worked up quite as rapidly as it should is pain sometimes back pain. And that can be mistaken for, well, they've got a slipped disc or something that's pretty benign and common. And in actuality, they're having bone pain for multiple myeloma. So I always tell our nurse practitioners and PAs, always listen to the patient. Because when I was younger, sometimes I'd be in a rush and I'd sort of blow off a symptom. Nowadays, you really can't do that, especially if you're thinking about a malignancy and you really need to pay attention to what the patient's saying. Sometimes you even have to drag it out of the patient, because, especially when they're getting treatment. But initial presentation, it can be very tough when you're trying to work up patients and you're in a busy practice. And so those are things that are really key, especially if the patient has persistent back pain, it's not getting better, and they're getting more and more debilitated. 
Can you explain what a plasma cytoma is, and do patients get diagnosed just with one lesion in some cases? Sure. Patients can have an isolated plasma cytoma, which actually can be quite favorable. And so those patients have an aggregation of plasma cells all in one lump. And it can be in the bone or it can be outside the bone. And if it's only one area and you're not seeing other evidence of multiple myeloma, these can be treated fairly conservatively with radiotherapy to the lesion in the absence of systemic chemotherapy. And that's obviously a benefit for the patient. And some of these patients can never have a problem with this again. Some will turn into multiple myeloma, and there's some risk features that suggest that if you have more than one plasma cytoma or if you have a high number of plasma cells, there are other features of the plasma cells in the bone marrow that suggest it may progress but sometimes this can be managed quite conservatively. These patients often receive bisphosphonates to help strengthen the bone because of the plasma cytoma within the bone, and they may receive bisphosphonates intermittently for one to two years following the presence of a plasma cytoma, especially if they have osteopenia. What are some of the locations that you see plasma cytoma and the clinical presentation? Yeah, we often will see them, obviously, in the bone, often in the spine, but they can be paraspinal. I used to see this more when I was a fellow. We'd often see these in the sinus areas. We'd see plasma cytomas there. We just don't see that quite as much as we used to. But often paraspinal, they can be isolated in the ribs. But oftentimes, if you've seen one in the ribs, you often will see more. But often they'll be related to the spinal column when they're isolated. So let's talk about your cases, beginning with your 60-year-old lady. She was seen in 2007, and she had pancytopenia and pneumonia, and she was profoundly anemic at presentation. And the complicating factor was she was a Jehovah's Witness, and so she did not wish to receive blood products. So she got treated with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, and she continued on it after good response, and then reached a plateau. And because she's a relatively young woman, she was referred to us for consideration for a stem cell transplant, which I found kind of interesting because she's a Jehovah's Witness. And I guess there's different rules and regulations when you're a Jehovah's Witness. So, Well, also, I mean, that involves reinfusion of her own cells. <laughs> right. And so I guess some of them won't take any of that. Really? So they won't have their own cells reinfused? They won't take their own cells. Some won't oh. take their own plasma. I guess I didn't realize there are all these different <laughs> levels of what you would take or not take. That's interesting. So you can't bank blood either for some Technically speaking, that's correct. They won't take their own red cell transfusion, but they would take stem cells, I guess, because they're not red cells. I guess the red cells is the big thing. She also was willing to take erythropoietin. So that made it a little easier. And so she went to another center that specialized in the sort of bloodless, or I should say transfusionless transplants. So she had a very large number of stem cells collected got a lot of erythropoietin, drive her hemoglobin up, and then had her stem cell transplant. She also wouldn't take platelet transfusions. I sometimes struggle with these differences. So she ended up getting no platelets, no red cells for transfusions, got her own stem cells, actually did pretty well, very uncomplicated course. Then she came back to the Buffalo area, and we would see her intermittently. So can you talk about the point after her transplant when she had relapse disease and she received pomalidomide and dexamethasone? We followed her fairly carefully because this is the first time I think her primary oncologist was using this drug, so we were helping him along with it. And it was remarkable, her response. 
as you know, you have to follow these patients carefully for cytopenias because pomalinamide can induce neutropenia, but she required minimal growth factor support. And the thing that was most gratifying is her hemoglobin had fallen back again due to marrow infiltration with plasma cells, and she was back down to a hemoglobin of five or six, feeling very symptomatic with it. And obviously wouldn't take a transfusion. But within about three months of POMDEX, she had a recovery of her hemoglobin to above seven, and she was maintaining a hemoglobin of nine for an extended period of time. Of course, then later on with intermittent growth factor support, and then we had to cut back a bit on the pomalinamide as her marrow reserve was having a little bit of a tough time tolerating the pomalinamide due to neutropenia. And what's her current situation? Is she still on the pomalinamide? She is, but she's probably progressing. Her M protein plateaued around three. And we kept her there for several months. I just actually this morning got off the phone with, with her referring doctor, and she is starting to progress again. She's developing anemia. She's never seen carfilzomib. So we're talking about combining POM with carfilzomib, MDEX, and trying to get some more mileage out of that. We don't have any open antibody trials we can get compassionate elotuzumab, uh, but it takes a few hoops to jump through. But those would be the things I'd be thinking about for further salvage. But we're thinking that since her primary oncologist is going to be administering it, going with POMCARDEX is the next step at trying to control her disease. So let me pick out a whole bunch of these points that you brought up. First of all, when she started, I guess, about a year ago on the POMDEX, what was her clinical situation? When you walked in the room, what did you see? How is she functioning? And what was her attitude? She's a very interesting lady. She's very committed to her religion, so she would be pale as can be. (laughs) And I knew that she was anemic because she'd be in a wheelchair. And then as she started to get better, she came in not in a wheelchair because she could walk without huffing and puffing and being incredibly short of breath. So she's always had a very good attitude. She's been very low-key about the blood thing. And she's always willing to try something new and always is willing to report symptoms in terms of how she's feeling. This comes up in all parts of medicine in terms of patients who are Jehovah's Witnesses or have restrictions in terms of blood products. Do you think she would have gone to the point of actually dying without getting blood? I've seen it happen. And so she might have. I mean, she got into a wheelchair, and so she must be pretty determined, it seems like, if she's going to get to that point. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but how would you feel if you lost a patient like that because of this? Yeah, these patients are a little different because it's sort of slow motion, whereas, say, if it's an AML patient, what do you do? I have seen an AML patient die because she refused blood products, and that was so sad. But again, everybody's different in terms of where they draw the line, what their beliefs are. But I felt very bad, and for children, it's different. I guess you can go, the pediatricians can go to court and get an order of protection because they're under 18, but if they're an adult, they're making this decision, and albeit one that I would disagree with in terms of long-term health, but it's something that they believe in. So she is very symptomatic. Was it your sense that most of the symptomatology she had was because of the anemia, or was she having other problems from the disease? She's, until recently, has never had hypercalcemia and has never had bone disease. She's been on bisphosphonates all throughout this, but never presented with lytic lesions. 
What's your background in terms of the type of work that she's done? And is she the kind of person who's looking up stuff on the web and asking you a lot of questions or just kind of leaving it up to you? She's leaving it up to us. She was an office worker beforehand and not incredibly medically sophisticated in terms of going to every website to look things up. That's something that a lot of patients will do. There are multiple websites, the two major ones, MMRF, Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, and the International Myeloma Foundation, both have a lot of material for patients. There's the Myeloma Beacon. It's an online site where people will blog about their experiences as a patient. She's not quite to that level, but we do have a fair number of patients who do look at that material. What was her social support system? Did she have a spouse and children? She's, I don't think she's married anymore. She was, but she's got a great, usually one or two of her sisters will come with her. I think she has a boyfriend now. That's right. And that means a lot because when you are this ill, you need to have that level of support because I don't know how she would have done this if she had been by herself. She would have needed family support or friend support to get her to appointments, help her with all the things that she needs to do, never mind paying the bills and the electricity during her care. What's her current level of functioning? Now that she's developed some hypercalcemia, she's been getting bisphosphonates again to bring it down. She just got out of the hospital. So her KPS or her performance status is getting lower, thus the need for having to start a new therapy. I'm not certain how much Carfilzin will add. We're hopefully that we can get several more months out of this, and then we'll have to be thinking about what we're going to do next. But prior to her having progression, you know, a few months ago, six months ago, sort of how high did she go in terms of quality of life? Did she return to normal function or what happened? No, she didn't get to normal. She's probably at about a 70 to 80 percent in that range. Again, able to get around without a wheelchair, able to do the activities of daily living, cooking, that kind of thing for herself. But in terms of working, she wasn't able to work. What did you say to her when you started the pomalidomide dexamethasone in terms of sort of what to look out for and how the drug works? Right. Well, the most important thing was to do all the paperwork and the sign-up so that she could get the drug. You have to tell people that they have to be compulsive about this because if they're not, they're not going to get their medication. That was number one. And number two is to make sure she maintained all her paperwork for insurance because it's an expensive drug. So those are the first two things I often will tell patients, that if you're going to keep taking this drug, you have to go through all the hoops to be able to maintain a drug being dispensed to you. Then in terms of side effects, the most important thing is mostly cytopenias. It's a pretty well-tolerated drug. If anything, it's the dexamethasone that causes the most symptoms. So we tell her, look, you really need to get in frequently for blood count checks, as your primary oncologist will tell you. And she was being checked at least monthly and sometimes twice monthly in terms of a CBC. So pomalidomide is really, the, I guess, the third major so-called IMID, immune modulatory drug. We start out with thalidomide, then lenalidomide, which has been used a lot in the last few years, and now pomalidomide. How do these drugs work, and what's the difference between them? That's a real good question. The really interesting thing about all of these drugs is they're derivatives of glutamate which I always find pretty amazing. And they're very small molecules. And thalidomide was originally designed for morning sickness. And obviously that was a big problem because it led to birth defects. And so it was the FDA's poster child for why you really need to have careful drug development and put this into multiple animal models because in one animal model it was tested in, it was or a couple, it was not teratogenic, but it was in humans, and I think it was like guinea pigs or something. 
so it fell by the wayside. And then I think in a couple of instances, it was used mostly for a lepromatous leprosy because it's got an immunomodulatory effect. And I believe some sharp medical student picked up on this in a leprosorium, and that became how it was then translated to other conditions. So it was used in graft-versus-host disease because it's immunomodulatory. And then in Arkansas, Bart Barlogi talks about this. One of his patients had said, well, myeloma's been associated on bone marrow biopsy with increased blood vessel formation. Thalidomide inhibits blood vessel formation. Why don't we try it for my disease? And he said he poo-pooed it initially, but then had a dramatic response. And that really changed everything. That NEJM article from several years ago, where they utilized this in relapse refractory disease, showed major advance. How it works? That's a real good question. It does have an anti-angiogenic or anti-blood vessel effect, but it also has a variety of other effects being immunomodulatory, not quite as much as the other two, which I can talk about in a sec, but it does change T-cell behavior. It has stromal cell effects, the stroma being within the marrow cavity, the lining of it, and it also has effects directly on the myeloma cells where it will affect B-cell function. Lenalidomide and pomalidomide were developed around the same time, and Len was the first one released, and that was found to have less anti-angiogenic effects, but more T-cell, B-cell function effects, so far more immunomodulatory and probably more effective than thalidomide and better tolerated in the sense it didn't give you all the neuropathy that was seen with thalidomide. It did cause more cytopenias. Thalidomide doesn't do that. Then pomalidomide is somewhat similar, even better side effect profile, we think. It does cause a fair amount of neutropenia, but less other hematopoietic toxicity. You know, some skin rashes occasionally, some GI, but very, very well tolerated. Again, very similar mechanism to lenalidomide, direct antimyeloma effect, less angiogenesis, more effects on T-cell and B-cell. And the other thing about these two drugs, LEN and POM, they both make antibodies work better. So for other diseases, such as lymphoma, it's been combined with rituximab to make rituximab work better. And if we're predicting ahead, when elotuzumab is approved, and I'm predicting that it will be, elotuzumab works because it's used with lenalidomide, which potentiates the activity of the antibody against multiple myeloma cells. So certainly lenalidomide is used a lot in patients as part of initial treatment. What about pomalidomide? Where along the natural history of disease is it used typically? Usually pomalidomide is used for relapse refractory disease. Right now, it would be hard to justify using POM up front unless it was part of a clinical trial. And some people are talking about doing that. But for relapse refractory, it's usually for two regimens, but that's its FDA indication along with, say, carfilzomib. But once patients progress, this is its place right now in the armamentarium. There's some phase two studies where it's been used up front, which look pretty exciting, but those, again, are in the context of a clinical trial. Now, in terms of all these IMIDs, what do we know about the impact in terms of increase of clotting, and what do you do about that? Sure. Multiple myeloma itself can predispose patients to having clots. So it was initially a bit hard to sort out because things like dexamethasone, once you start treating myeloma patients, they can get deep venous thrombosis, DVTs, PEs, pulmonary emboli. But when you started using the IMIDs, there was a larger increase in pulmonary emboli DVTs. So people then led to a variety of different strategies, be it Lovenox, low molecular weight heparin, Coumadin in low dose, or aspirin. 
And it turns out that probably all three approaches are reasonable to prevent DVT. So all three drugs, it's mandatory that patients receive some form of anticoagulation to prevent the development of DVTs and PEs. And if you don't have them on that, they run a big risk of having a thrombotic event. What's the rationale for using the DEX with the pomalidomide? What's the activity of pomalidomide alone, and how much additional activity do you see by bringing in the corticosteroid? I think POM has activity in and of itself. You're probably talking about 30% maybe. But when you add the DEX in, you potentiate it, you get better responses. It works a lot better. So I think if the patient can tolerate it, and that's always a big issue, is how you deliver the dexamethasone, because a lot of patients hate dexamethasone. If you can get away with once weekly, or if they can even do the four days on, four days off, it has better activity. So I think it's part of a lot of treatment in myeloma. Single agents just are not, they're okay. Like carfilzomib alone is okay, but it's about 20, 25%. And you're really getting a lot more mileage for the patient if you can combine drugs in terms of getting better responses. What's the spectrum of problems that you see with corticosteroids and myeloma and how do you deal with it? Oh, you name it. They get hyperglycemia because this is often an older patient population. They'll get hypertension, electrolyte disturbances, mood disturbances are a big one. Patients, they'll be very grouchy. And I always tell the caregivers, look, you know, maybe you could get them a t-shirt and say it's the drugs that make me act this way <laughs> because they get very unhappy. And, I, you know, some people get depressed. Some people get hyper. One lady told me that she spent all night cleaning her house when she's on dexamethasone. So it's all over the place, the psycho neuroactivity of the steroids. And never mind the fact they are immunosuppressive, so occasionally patients are going to be more susceptible to getting infections. So people in general talk a lot, they will beg for alternative treatments or lowering of the dose of dexamethasone. And I think that's an important thing to, again, listen to the patient. You're better off, instead of giving them 40 milligrams or 20, even if you're giving them 10, that's better than nothing. So let's talk about your 50-year-old lady. This is really interesting. And what happened was she presented with fatigue in 2005. She was found to have a plasmacytoma of her sternum. She had an elevated total protein. She was also anemic. And her calcium and kidney function were normal. So she had an IgA multiple myeloma. She had a 30% plasma cells in her bone marrow. So she received induction therapy with what was standard back then, vincristine, doxorubicin, dexamethasone, the so-called VAD regimen. And because she was also a new patient, we had a protocol then where we were adding thalidomide to it. She went into a near complete remission and then had a mobilization with cyclophosphamide for stem cell collection. We used to do a lot more cyclophosphamide mobilization back then. She had a single autotransplant, and then at 90 days after her stem cell transplant was randomized to placebo or lenalidomide. She was on the lenalidomide arm, and when she was on blinded, was found to be on lenalidomide and continued. So let's go through different aspects of her case, the first being just the fact that she had an autotransplant. Can you talk about how transplant fits into the treatment strategy in multiple myeloma nowadays, and what some of the key questions are that are being addressed in clinical trials about transplant? 
Yes, for patients who are receiving non-protocol therapy and who are considered transplant eligible, good performance status, no comorbidities, after some form of induction therapy, patients often will be offered autotransplant. If they don't go on to autotransplant, we will at least highly recommend they collect their stem cells, put them in the freezer, and then consider autotransplant at first disease progression. And this has been, it comes in waves. Sometimes transplant is sort of in style, sometimes it's out. It was in the mid-90s that transplant was shown in randomized phase three studies and then repeated after the year 2000 to show it was superior to chemotherapy. But this is chemotherapy without bortezomib or thalidomide, lenalidomide. So then in the modern era, we are now asking these questions again. There are two large studies that are open. One is in the United States, That involves an RVD induction, and then after induction therapy, patients have their stem cells collected, and they've been randomized to either early transplant or transplant at first disease progression. Those who get transplanted get an RVD consolidation and then maintenance with lenalidomide. Those who do not get continued RVD for, I think, about eight cycles and then on to lenalidomide maintenance. And that's going to be studied. These patients will be studied in great detail. They're studied genetics, molecular testing to see whether or not there's something that would predict for some patients who could be delayed on transplant or may not even need a transplant at all versus those who should get it up front. I think there's still a role for transplant, but we're asking the question now in clinical trials with the idea that the more you can knock down the cancer, the longer it takes for it to come back because it's still considered an incurable disease. Are there non-transplant therapies that will do the same, that will knock it down, keep it from coming back, or control the disease long-term so that it's sitting there, but it's not causing bone destruction, hypercalcemia, or anemia. How do you explain to a patient considering transplant what exactly is done and what to expect? Sure. What we'll often tell the patient is, we'll treat you, and then when you've had a good response, we'll do a bone marrow test. We want to make sure there's not a lot of plasma cells there. We prefer less than 10% or as low as possible. And then patients now... Sometimes we'll receive chemotherapy, especially if they're in study with cyclophosphamide, and then they are given growth factor shots, usually GCSF, and then they're put on a leukophoresis machine to have their stem cells collected. It's not terrible to go on a leukophoresis machine. It's similar to donating platelets, but it, it can be a little boring, and they usually have a catheter place, so it makes it a little bit easier. We always tell them don't drink coffee before they go on the machine because having to get up and urinate when you're attached to a leukophoresis machine is not an easy thing to do in a crowded unit. And if you're shy, it's not easy. And then what we often are now doing is we're using GCSF and plerixifor to mobilize stem cells. We find that it's a little bit easier to control in time because when you're chemo-mobilizing, it's very hard to predict. You're checking CBCs. You're waiting for their white count to come up. If they come up over the weekend, it's just can you get them on the leukophoresis machine or can you wait till money, which everybody prefers. Whereas if you use GCSF and plerixifor, it's very easy. If you start on Thursday, you're going on the machine on Monday, you're getting a dose of plerixifor to further mobilize cells on Sunday night. And it makes it a lot easier in terms of time management and convenience for the patient. And they also don't get as sick getting G and plerixifor as opposed to cyclophosphamide and G. 
At a more basic level, how do you explain to patients sort of the strategy of transplant, particularly in terms of the fact that essentially it's not really the transplanted cells that are having effect on the tumor, but rather the high dose of chemotherapy? Yeah, good point. And it's the same for all autotransplant. It really transplants a bit of a misnomer. It really should be rescue. In other words, you're getting a very high dose of chemotherapy to knock down the cancer cells. And because if we didn't give you the stem cell rescue, it might be weeks or never before your counts come back up. We give the patient their own stem cells to have rapid count recovery after the high-dose chemotherapy. So it's a rescue from the marrow toxic effects of the chemotherapy. So you mentioned the fact that this lady is receiving post-transplant so-called maintenance with lenalidomide. She actually participated in one of the key studies that you ran that looked at this question What do you tell patients to expect for the long term in this situation when they're getting lenalidomide in a maintenance fashion in terms of complications and side effects, and what kinds of things have you observed? We tell the patient that they're going to be stuck with us for a very long time if they're going to stay on maintenance therapy and that they have to come back at least every three to six months and close to every three months to have some form of restaging. We like to get a CBC On the study, we did it monthly, and I don't have a problem with that if the patient doesn't because we found that some of our patients asymptomatically will get quite neutropenic and not realize it. And if we let them go too long a period of time, they could be quite neutropenic, and then it takes a while to rebound from that. Fortunately, it's not a toxic neutropenia, so they usually don't end up in the hospital with febrile neutropenia. So it's really important to monitor blood counts. Lenalidomide can also cause occasionally some GI toxicity. We had one case of a lady who got autoimmune hemolytic anemia from it, and then we took her off and we challenged her again. She got autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and that was that. And so she stayed off the lenalidomide because of that. It was a bit unusual, but it has been reported. And then the thing we're also thinking about, there's the development of second primary malignancies. And we wrestle with this all the time because it's something that patients, you know, it's funny, I think doctors worry about it more than patients. We have found that our patients, by and large, will say, look, I've seen what happens with myeloma. They see other patients in the waiting room, and since the second cancer signal is relatively low, it's about 3%, and the chance of having the disease come back or dying from it is much higher, they often will consider lenalidomide. It's the rare patient who wants to avoid maintenance therapy because of the concern of that SPM. And I think as physicians, it's part of that do no harm. You don't want to cause problems with something you do in a maintenance setting. I mean, obviously, when you get a leukemia patient developed, fortunately, we have only had one patient in our group who's developed an MDS-like picture, and we had to stop lenalidomide. Since I'm aware of the 100-104 study, there have been a fair number of both AML and ALL that have developed more AML and a lot more MDS, and it's meant stopping therapy. But again, small numbers of patients, but it's not a small consideration. Those are the big things I'm thinking about. And obviously, they have to do the program where they sign up to get the drug shipped to them monthly. So you have to have a pretty motivated patient to do this. It can't be somebody who blows things off or is very noncompliant because you're going to have a hard time getting drug into them. So I see that you wrote or had a paper in the Lancet Oncology a few months ago putting together all the data from the trials that have looked at lenalidomide as maintenance 
trying to get a better fix on the actual types of cancers, second cancers that are seen in the incidence. What's the bottom line, particularly in terms of the types of second cancers that are occasionally seen? Sure. I think it depends on whether you're getting high-dose or low-dose therapy, too. If you look at the paper that Antonio Palumbo's the first author, low-dose melphalan, such as MPR or other therapies where you're combining low-dose melphalan and an IMID, MPT, those are the ones where you see a pretty high incidence of heme malignancies, in particular MDS-AML, a lot of MDS. And that's probably just because melphalan is toxic to the marrow. And even if you're not using an IMID with it, I remember the old days when we were using just melphalan and prednisone, we had a lot of patients who would develop MDS because you'd burn out their marrow because the alkylator was toxic. So I think that that's one important lesson from that paper is that prolonged exposure to low-dose melphalan is probably the highest risk for the development of a second cancer, usually a hemolignancy. There is this funny signal of solid tumors, and it's about twofold more. We don't have a good handle for that. And there's some people who claim there may be some more melanoma, but that's a bit of a moving target. And the problem, too, is these are older patients, and a lot of them have sun exposure. So how that all fits in... I'm not certain. There's going to be, I think it'll be very important to see with the determination trial, the RVD and the transplant up front versus transplanted progression, the second cancer signal. I've talked to Paul Richardson, and so far they haven't seen it. It's still a little early, although the French arm has already closed. It'll be interesting to see whether or not we're going to see those type of second cancers or not. For example, in CLTP-100-104, more than half of our patients who developed heme malignancies had anthracycline exposure. So whether or not that means something in a larger group of patients, we don't know. But I think as the field evolves in terms of treatment, we're going to be thinking of ways to avoid especially marrow toxic agents combined together in an intensive way, except for, say, high-dose melphalan, and then you stop it, whereas prolonged exposure may be bad for our patient's marrow, and thus the development of second cancers. What about the duration of lenalidomide maintenance? How long do you use it for? We use it until progression based on the CLTB 100-104 data, which was lenalidomide at about a dose of 10 milligrams, plus or minus 5, until progression of disease. So final issue I want to ask you about, I see that this lady got zoledronic acid for two years, and I guess it was stopped at that point. Can you talk about your current approach to using bisphosphonates in myeloma in terms of the duration and whether you use it in everybody or just people with bone disease? Sure. We use it in everybody for at least two years. Now, it's interesting. This patient, it was just so long ago, there was a standard or guideline that you gave bisphosphonates for two years and then stopped. And I think that was in response to the osteonecrosis of the jaw, which was a big issue back then, and we didn't quite realize what was going on. And that two years was sort of pulled out of the air. There wasn't a lot of hard data to say, oh, this is what you need to do. And in fact, the British showed in the MRC9 trial that bisphosphonate, zoledronic acid, compared to clodronate, an oral bisphosphonate, was in terms of overall survival. So we have a tendency to use it. There's variation amongst our practice, but a lot of times we'll back off to say three or four times a year to continue that bone strengthening effect. She's a very, this is funny, when I saw her three or four weeks ago, we got a DEXA scan on her. She's now developed osteopenia. Her T scores are minus 1.5, minus 1.3. And so uh, her nurse practitioner called her up to say, you need to go on something. And she 
being you know, a maple syrup producer is very risk averse in terms, she doesn't like medications. That's why I think she only takes five milligrams of lenalidomide. But she was like, well, I don't know if I want to go on bisphosphonates. We were like, no, you don't want a fractured hip. So I think she's getting the idea that she needs to be on something. And a lot of these patients, especially she's had such a good response that she may benefit from just three or four doses for a year, and then we could back off or even use an oral bisphosphonate. My only concern about an oral bisphosphonate, it takes forever to work relative to the IV. The biggest issue, of course, to circle back to the ONJ, the osteocrust of the jaw, they have to go to the dentist. They have to have their teeth checked because if you don't check their teeth and they need root canals or something needs to be pulled, those are the patients who are at higher risk for developing ONJ. And the other thing that's really important is the patients who smoke. Smoking makes this worse. And so we spend a lot of time and education on patients in smoking cessation because it's hard enough to treat a patient with toxic chemotherapy, never mind the fact that they're smoking, they get pneumonia and ONJ and all these other complications. That's really interesting. What's the mechanism? It probably is wound healing. It's interesting because I can remember one lady, she had the worst ONJ in the world and continued to smoke. And it took years of antibiotics and more antibiotics and surgeries and everything else. And I can't say it with 100% certainty, but my feeling is that the, and there's our dentists feel very strongly about this. We have in-house dentists who work with us on these patients, that smoking inhibits the ability to heal from the ONJ. It's more a healing issue than it is a predisposing factor. I see. And just out of curiosity, how many cases of ONJ have you had at your center, let's say in the last year? Oh, we're way down. Within our group, maybe two, one or two. We used to see 10 or 15 a year. And so now that we've gotten a lot smarter about it, in other words, if somebody needs a dental procedure, we try and keep them off bisphosphonates for three months. They have their procedure, be it an implant or a root canal or major surgery. Then we wait three months before we reinitiate bisphosphonates. We're usually able to do that. We hope we're able to. I mean, obviously, if they have hypercalcemia, that's different. But if they don't have any of those issues, we try and give them a good amount of a holiday from the bisphosphonate if they're having dental surgery. I can't give you a lot of data to support that, but we think it allows them to have the longest period of time where they're not exposed to the bisphosphonate and thus have problems with wound healing, especially after the surgery.